Mr. mentioned, I flipped through that book uh, many times a day in my little room in Oxford, uh, kind of checking my reality. Uh, what year did you get? So speak? it's really uh, it was a special uh, book for me during my studies and it influenced me. So it's a great honor to have you here, and it's especially great that uh, Professor Richard Stone is supporting this gap centers here in Columbia. I invite you to describe it. Uh, thank you, Charles. It's uh, flattering uh, to be called a student while I was in Russia in 1973, the Soviet Union, but uh, that's not true. Uh, I was actually uh, taking a gap year between serving as Assistant Solicitor General of the United States and beginning as an associate professor at this institution, and I was really no longer a student except a student of life. Uh, and Rabbi Tulushkin, with me, uh, was already an ordained rabbi. Uh, so um, we, we were not uh, kids, although I will confess to you, we were given the assignment we had, we were green and we were frightened. We weren't in Moscow and Leningrad, we were in Moscow, but the core of our assignment was not to go to well-populated, well-known places. We were the first people to visit Siberia. We entered the Sino-Soviet border in Khabarovsk uh, and went to Irkutsk and Novosibirsk and the uh, Yom Kippur War broke out while we were there and we didn't get news of that war for the first four days. We were among the uh, only well-informed Jews in the world who didn't realize that that war uh, was taking place. Uh, that is part of, uh, and I suppose in some way defines, uh, as the uh, as opening remarks, my 40-some-odd-year close friendship uh, with Rabbi Joseph Tulushkin. Uh, we uh, have known each other a long time, have been through a great deal together, uh, and that trip to Russia is the thing we most reminisce about, but there are many other topics. Uh, his resume is so well known to so many of you. Uh, I will say simply that I woke up um, uh, this morning uh, on an airplane having taken the red eye from California, and only Rabbi Kalushka, uh, Charles, not you I'm afraid, would have attracted me uh, to come here today uh, to attend this uh, uh, event. Uh, Rabbi Kalushka, uh, as, as we said, an ordained rabbi at Yeshiva University, uh, who is uh, now essentially the most prolific and I think the best popular writer, popularizing writer, and I mean that in a very, very high sense, not in any uh, demeaning sense, of uh, Jewish information and Jewish education uh, of anyone uh, in the country. He has really perfected the vehicle of writing something that an intelligent person with less than a full Jewish background can learn deeply from, at the same time uh, to uh, give, a, give a review to people who have a better uh, a, a Jewish education. And he's done it many, many times, starting with the book Nine Questions People Ask About Judaism, which was called by uh, Herman Woke, The Intelligent Skeptic's Guide to Judaism. Uh, he wrote in those days uh, together with his lifelong best friend, Dennis Prager. Uh, the two of them brought a very interesting perspective together. Uh, they published a few books early. It was the book about anti-Semitism and reasons yes. for it together. Uh, yes. And, and, then, and then Joseph Bolton and went on his own and has published a lot of great books, Jewish literacy, Jewish humor, the Bible, etc., etc. Uh, and he has not yet published, but has just given a select few of us, the galleys, to what could be uh, the book that not only puts him on the map, he's long been on the map, 
uh, but gives him uh, a place on the map and puts him in the middle of uh, controversy, diversity, conversation uh, of people deeply interested in Jewish subjects, and that is a uh, very sophisticated uh, biography uh, of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Um, and so, um, you can't have that yet, it's still in galleys, only a few of us get to read that uh, now. But you, in, come June 10th, you'll not only see it, but you'll see him in probably every Barnes and Noble between here uh, and, and Lexington Avenue. Uh, Joseph, Rabbi Joseph Polushkin will speak to this group. Uh, Joseph, I think if um, Judge Ginsburg were not downstairs with seven or 800 people uh, in attendance, it would be a bigger crowd, but this is a high quality crowd, a high quality crowd. And, and given a choice, I would definitely come to see you. Semitism, pogrom, holocaust, and genocide. 
in more recent years, another phenomenon has entered uh, the Western world. And now it's not necessarily primarily associated with Jews, but it was started by anti-Semitism, and that, of course, is suicide bomber, which described the terrorist attacks perpetuated, perpetrated in Israel in the early 2000s, and which again underscores another important theme of anti-Semitism. Why should moral non-Jews be interested in it, other than the fact that any sort of prejudice like that is terrible? Because they're going to be the next targets of it. It starts with the Jews, but it never ends with the Jews. The day Khomeini was installed in Iran, not too many people would recall this, obviously by that point Israel was out of Iran, but you know who was standing there in Iran, at the Israeli embassy in Iran, waving? It was Yasser Arafat. Uh, because what started again against the Jews, very short time later, culminated, culminated then the takeover of the American embassy. Uh, right. The permanence of anti-Semitism is suggested by the fact that as small a group as the Jews are, they are often perceived as the great enemies, or among the greatest enemies of the leading world powers. The Romans had an enormous anger at the Jews, certainly for most of its history, and it's very important to stress that that is not the case today, but for most of its history, Christianity had a real animus against the Jews. And in the 20th century, the great powers, who did they go after? The Jews. And who was the Nazis, the communists, and in the radical world of Islam, certainly today. So what is the reason for this great hatred? Now, if you look at modern attempts to explain anti-Semitism, generally they're written during a period when the Jews seemed less distinctive. Most, many, many Jews were no longer religious. And many of the people writing on anti-Semitism basically had only a secular framework out of which they would operate. So I'll give you a few examples. I would venture to guess that everybody here has at some point heard the theory offered that Jews were hated in medieval Europe because they were moneylenders. Now, it's an interesting question. Number one, do people have reason to hate moneylenders? It will surprise no one to learn that the answer is yes. In 13th century France, the average rate of interest on loans was 43% per annum. I don't think anybody had fond feelings towards the person who lent them money. But in order to assume that that was, for example, a cause of anti-Semitism, we'd have to make the following remarkable presumption. Jews were active, integrated members of European society. At some point in the 13th century, whatever was the equivalent then of the Federation of Jewish Philanthropies, got together and the Jews made a decision, no, the real money to be made is in money lending, let's become money lenders. Of course, that's absurd. What happened was Jews were hated. Because they were hated, they were restricted in the professions they could practice. One of the professions they could practice was money lending. Once they became money lenders, it exacerbated, but it didn't cause anti-Semitism. Most of the factors that secular efforts to explain anti-Semitism fall prey to is they take factors that exacerbated anti-Semitism and they say those were the causative factors. But that wasn't the case. Economic issues are not real causes of anti-Semitism. In fact, Jews today in the United States are encountering a relatively low level of anti-Semitism. How many people here are your backgrounds ultimately Eastern Europe, your familial backgrounds? Okay? How many are German Jews? Sephardic Jews? Okay, I've never had it, you know, quite to this extent. You know, German and Russian Jews always had tensions. There's a famous incident at the Zionist Congress 
where uh, Chaim Weizmann got into a fight with the German Jewish Zionist leaders. And he says, you know what the problem is with German Jews? They have all the charm of Germans and all the modesty of Jews. <laughs> but in any case, I think it's probably fair to say that for almost all of us, our great-grandparents were significantly poorer than us and suffered significantly greater anti-Semitism. So Jews have tended very, ironically, very often have suffered less anti-Semitism in capitalist societies and didn't, and that wasn't the case in others. What about the theory of Jews as scapegoats? Also, we've often heard Jews are scapegoats. Hitler blamed the Jews to gain power. Lucy DeVewitz, 40 years ago, wisely entitled The History of the Holocaust, The War Against the Jews, to underscore that as much as Hitler was fighting a war against the West, he was fighting a war to murder all the Jews in the world. Eva Reichman wrote one of the first early histories of Hitler's rise to power. She was a political scientist and wrote a book called Hostages of Civilization. And she made the point that within Germany, Hitler did in fact come to power largely on economic issues. Everybody in Germany knew Hitler hated the Jews. But he actually, during his campaigns in those years, disguised the extent of his anti-Semitism because he knew it had the capacity to alienate middle-class voters. Hitler, in other words, didn't blame the Jews to get to power, but as Davidowitz's thesis largely is, he gained power in large measure so that he could murder the Jews. Jews were not scapegoats. Anybody looks at Hitler's last message that he left when he committed suicide was he begged the people to continue a merciless war against the Jews, a statement that would make no sense if Jews were scapegoats to Hitler. But there's an even more fundamental problem with the scapegoat theory. It doesn't explain why the Jews. Why can different elements of a society be united, rich, poor, far right, far left, deeply, uh, uh, deeply religious and deeply anti-religious when Jews are blamed? About 70 years ago, a Jewish writer at the time, Maurice Samuel, wrote a book about anti-Semitism called The Great Hatred. And he pinpointed the weakness of the scapegoat theory. He said, to say that a man has illusions, hallucinations when he's hungry makes sense. To say that a man has hallucinations only about Jews when he's hungry doesn't make sense. So the scapegoat theory still doesn't account for, in addition to being inaccurate, doesn't account for why such disparate elements would be united when it's against the Jews. In the aftermath of the Holocaust, the American Jewish Committee uh, commissioned a series of studies trying to pinpoint the psychological explanation for anti-Semitism. The lead volume in the study was called The Authoritarian Personality, which tried to show that there was a psychological abnormality in the Europeans who supported Hitler and who supported anti-Semitism, that they were people who, because of certain uh, weaknesses in their personality structure, were, were attracted to authoritarian regimes and anti-Semitic regimes. The problem is, what does that mean? That all the Europeans and all the Germans who supported Hitler were mentally sick, and after the war, when there was a change in Germany, people became suddenly mentally healthy. Jews would like to believe the psychological explanation, because I think we all want to believe that if people were only psychologically healthy and pleasant people, they would all like us. But how do we account for the phenomenon that there are people who don't have other overt psychologically uh, sick characteristics who hate us. Also, I'm not willing to say that everybody who saved Jews had to have been a model of mental health. Who knows? They could have been people who had martyr complexes or other things. I think it's too easy uh, and too, in a sense, self-gratifying to blame it all on psychological disorders. 
the answer Dennis and I offered years ago on why do Jews, and which essentially I've held to ever since, is that ultimately anti-Semitism is a response to Jews, Judaism, and to Jewish values. My argument is, is that Judaism historically has stood on three pillars. The notion of God, it was the Jews who brought the idea of a single God into the world with a universal moral law. It was, by the way, that's what Jews claimed that they were chosen for. Well, from that sense, chosenness is historically an accurate perception if we're claiming that we were chosen to make God known to the world. That's how the world did learn about God. The Jewish concept of law, ultimately rooted in the Torah, in the Talmud, in Jewish laws, and the Jewish concept of peoplehood, which is one of the unusual features of Judaism, is that we are simultaneously a religion and a people. I'm going to say more about that in a few moments. Until around 1800, or even a little past, the world in which the Jews lived was primarily a religious world. And anti-Semitism was primarily directed against the religious components of Judaism. A Jew who is willing to give up his notions of God and law, and for example, to embrace Christianity, to embrace Islam, could be accepted. As the world shifted and became more secular, and peoplehood, nationalism became a more dominant value, anti-Semitism starts to shift more to being directed not against Jewish religion as much, but against the peoplehood aspect of Judaism. And that is why the most powerful contemporary expression of anti-Semitism is anti-Zionism. In those regions of the world where religion is still dominant, as in Islam, anti-Semitism focuses both on the Jewish religion and on peoplehood. Let me just review for a few moments what I mean by these three pillars of Judaism. Take the idea of God. Around the year 40, the Roman Emperor Caligula decreed that his statue should be erected in every temple in the Roman Empire. And so it was done, except for the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews refused to put it up. Caligula was furious, and he actually decreed that the temple should be destroyed. A delegation of Jews came to plead with him and said, we are willing to make prayers at our temple on the emperor's behalf. Caligula, for all that he was known to be half crazy, was not stupid. He said, I don't want you to make prayers for me. I want you to make prayers to me. To the Jews' great good fortune, he was killed in a palace intrigue a very short time after he had issued the order to destroy the temple, and it was delayed. It had a bit of a, 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 an unhappy effect. The Jews were so convinced that that proved God was on their side that plans ultimately were made at to continue to revolt against the Romans, which happened 30 years later, and that was a revolt that had very unhappy consequences for the Jewish people. Around the same time, Christianity comes into being. And for most of history, Christianity was the major factor in spreading hostility towards the Jews. Again, I emphasize that is not the case today, and today, in fact, particularly in the United States, Jews have unusually good relations with the Christian world. But what was the source of Christianity's animus towards the Jews. The issue, of course, had to do with the fact that Jesus was a Jew, early, all his early followers were Jews, and the Jews, the only people who knew him, rejected him. Let me draw an analogy, a far-fetched analogy. By the way, there were certain English words which if you didn't know they were English, you'd assume were Yiddish, like the word far-fetched. Far-flung. <laughs> Anyway, suppose, and again, I'm, I'm emphasizing it's far-fetched, suppose everybody in the United States believed Jimmy Carter was the Messiah, 
The only people who did not believe Jimmy Carter was the Messiah were a group of citizens in a little town in Georgia called Plains. How would the rest of us react to Plains, Georgia? In one of two ways. Either we would say, listen, if we who know him only a little think he's the Messiah, but they who know him well say he's not, they're probably right. Or alternatively, if we who know him only a little can recognize that he's the Messiah, that he's God, then they who know him well must surely know him. And if they refuse to acknowledge it, it must be because there is some evil within them. Unfortunately for the Jews, this latter is what was perceived. Christians actually thought the Jews knew Jesus was the Messiah, knew Jesus was God, but because of a perversity in their nature, refused to acknowledge it. That accounts for an aspect of medieval anti-Semitism that I'm sure has puzzled all of us. The nature of the crazy things people said about Jews. Okay, they say we hate Jews, Jews cheat people, Jews are snobs, whatever they could say, we could imagine people saying that. But Jews kill non-Jews and drink their blood? And that was widely believed? In 1215, the, uh, the 4th Lateran Council of the Catholic Church affirms its official doctrine, the doctrine of transubstantiation, which means that at the Catholic Mass, how many people here have ever been to a Catholic Mass? How many of you have been in shul recently? <laughs> 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 you, know, you know, at the Catholic Mass, the wafer, we tend to think of it, yeah, the wafer represents the body of Jesus, the wine represents the blood, but Catholics don't think that. that the, the doctrine of Catholicism is that actually there's a miracle, transubstantiation, it becomes the body of Christ, it becomes the blood. Once that, you know, so you'd think, okay, what does that have to do with the Jews? Unfortunately, the moment that doctrine was passed, thousands of Jews ultimately died because of it. Because if you actually believe that it made sense that the Jews who had once crucified Jesus would break into Catholic churches, steal wafers, and actually torture them. I mean, it sounds so crazy. That, but, but that's what happened. Once you had that belief spread that the Jews knew Jesus was, but rejected it. In 1610, the medical faculty at the University of Vienna certifies its official opinion that Jewish law required Jewish doctors to kill one out of ten of their Christian patients. Can you imagine what it was like to be in a Jewish doctor's office with nine people in front of you? <laughs> Martin Luther said Jews are so proficient in the use of poisons they can kill someone in five minutes or in five years. And here we come across one of the interesting aspects of anti-Semitism as well. Very often when people dislike another group, they will claim that the group that they dislike are also their mental inferiors. You meet white racists, and you know the sort of things they're going to start saying about, about black people. It's an odd feature of anti-Semitism that anti-Semites have often said that Jews are very bright, but they think that they use their intelligence in a malevolent manner. In fact, I've concluded that there are two groups of people who think Jews are brighter than everybody else, anti-Semites and Jews. You know, I wrote a book once on Jewish humor. One of the classic Jewish jokes is in the early 20th century, a Jew's traveling on the Trans-Siberian Railroad, and suddenly an officer in the Tsar's army gets on the train, sits down opposite the Jew, the train starts to move. Soon the officer grabs the Jew by the lapels and says, tell me, why are you Jews brighter than everybody else? The Jewish guy doesn't know what to answer. Finally, he says, I think it's because of the herring we eat. The train ride resumes. The Jew takes out a piece of herring and starts to eat it. The officer says, how many more pieces of herring do you have? A dozen. How much do you want for them? 20 rubles. Big sum of money. 
the Jew gives him the herring. The officer takes it back and says, this is absurd. In Moscow, I should have bought all this herring for a few cupboards. The Jew says, you see, it's working already. <laughs> when it came to Islam, the source of the anti-Semitism in some ways was related to Christianity. Christians expected Jews to respond positively to the message of Jesus, just as Muhammad did. Muhammad thought that the Jews would acknowledge him as their prophet, and originally he displayed a friendly disposition towards Jews. But Jews didn't acknowledge Muhammad as a prophet, and this started to trigger tremendous anger. He got into political conflicts with Jews, he then made claims, whether he made the claims or claims were made in his name, in the Quran, if you look through the Quran, you can look up various verses, if anybody wants later, I can give you references, you know, you'll find that, that the Jews took out from their Bible, Muhammad claims, a prophecy that Abraham had made about the future coming of Muhammad. He argued that he, Muhammad alone, was a true monotheist. Christianity was not true monotheism because they believed Jesus was God. I can understand that argument. But who does he claim Jews believed was God? Does anybody even know? Ezra, the prophet, the prophet Ezra. He claims the Jews worshipped him as God. And then, because of the political conflicts he was having with the Jews, statements that he made in a context at that time were brought down in the Quran and understood as applying to Jews throughout history. Humiliation and righteousness should be stamped upon them. A comment that Anwar Sadat, prior to his signing a peace agreement with Israel, and he does seem that at that point to have undergone a real transformation, but prior to that he used to speak to Egyptian officers about humiliation and wretchedness, as our prophet said, should be stamped upon them, and how Islam and how Israel was going to be defeated and this would again be the condition of the Jews. The God issue has mattered to modern totalitarian movements as well. Hermann Rauschning, who was an early associate of Hitler and a friend of Hitler's, wrote with Hitler, fled Germany, came to the United States, and published a book of what he called Hitler's Table Talk. He used to be present when Hitler would have afternoon meetings. And needless to say, nobody started arguing with Hitler at those meetings. But he would take notes. And a recurrent theme in Hitler's rants was he wanted to destroy the Asiatic god-tyrant of the Jews and his life-denying Ten Commandments. He saw the whole notion of conscience as a Jewish invention by which weak people were enabled to weaken strong people from acting on their impulses. And of course, in the case of communism, the hatred of God, which was the Jewish contribution to the world, and the hatred of religion. What was it ultimately rooted in? It was ultimately rooted in the fact that in totalitarian movements, the last thing in the world the movement wants is anything above the movement. Because by definition, the movement defines morality. To take probably the most evil regime in the world today, and there's competition for that, but I think there's one that really ranks shoulders and head above, and that's North Korea, which, which seems to me to be as much like a Nazi state as anyone could imagine. You know, I, re I remember reading recently of a case where there had been a bad storm and it had shaken the trees. It's so pathetic. It's a heartbreaking thing. And so as a result, a Christian man there who had hidden a New Testament in his tree it was shaken out of the tree. The neighbor found it. And the man and his family were all sent to concentration camp, which is the only way you really can refer 
to what goes on in North Korea. Because you can imagine in any totalitarian regime, the notion of belief in God is repugnant because it means there's something higher than the regime. When Richard and I were in Russia, dancing with Jews on Sofa's Torah on our tip of a street, one of the songs they sang said, I fear no one, only God above. And at that moment, you understood why religion is such a threat to totalitarian regime. And just to give a, a break for just a second, two of the mitzvot in the Torah concerning God are love of God, which I think most people, if you have a belief in God, you're comfortable with that notion. And even if you don't have a belief in God, it's not a challenging notion. And it's a very well-known notion because it's in the first paragraph of the Shema. You have to and you shall love the Lord your God. Most people, even religious people, are often uncomfortable with the notion of fear of God. But in the Bible, fear of God serves two functions. Number one, it liberates people from fear of human beings. The Bible goes out of its way to tell us that the two midwives who saved Jewish babies when Pharaoh was drowning them in the Nile, everybody know what their names were? Shifra and Pua, right. Shifra was lucky, girls were named after her. Not so many girls are named after Pua, but in any case. But anyway, it's when the Bible explains why they did it. It says they feared God. In other words, everybody else in Egypt was going along with Pharaoh's orders because they were scared what would happen to them if they didn't. What liberated them was they were probably also afraid, but they feared God more than they, more than they feared Pharaoh. So the Jewish notion of God is a tremendous threat to totalitarian regimes. What about law? In the medieval world, Jews wouldn't eat with their neighbors, they wouldn't marry with their neighbors. I don't think that ultimately was the cause of the real distrust. I think what happened was Jewish law affected Jews in ways that raised the quality of Jewish life and often made Jews the subjects of a great amount of envy. I'll just offer one example because we have a limited amount of time. You know, one common attribute of Jews that is well noted in the Western world has been Jewish professional success, Jewish professional affluence, which is often rooted in the fact of Jews having higher levels of education than the average non-Jews. You know, now a lot of attention is focused on the fact that the group people are most struck by having that, those attributes now are Asians who have come to the United States. But this was a fact. You know, Jews have long been represented uh, in places where they were not subjected to quotas, well in excess of their percentage of the population. The Jewish representation at Ivy League schools is 10 times or more in excess of what it should logically be just based on Jews as a percentage of the population. I once computed that if statistics, you know, worked on a random basis, one Jew should win one Nobel Prize every 30 years. In any given year, if a Jew doesn't win a Nobel Prize, how many of you assume that there was anti-Semitism? <laughs> By the way, how many of you check each year to see if there were any Jewish winners? How many of you follow? Okay, I mean, it's, right, it's so in excess. But what is the source of it? So again, when secular views were being offered, you get sociological explanations of the Jewish disproportionate success in education, and they'd say things like, Jews were discriminated against because a Jew knew that they were discriminated against, so Jews would work twice as hard and be twice as good in order to succeed. And that accounts for Jewish success. In one form or another, most of us heard explanations like that. The problem is those explanations are idiotic. They make no sense. The whole logic of affirmative action is, is that when groups are discriminated against, they do worse, not better. What are we going to say? When groups are discriminated against, they do worse, except for Jews. When they're discriminated against, they do better. It makes no sense. It's rooted in the fact that Judaism had a culture with an extraordinary emphasis on education. 
I don't know of other cultures, religious cultures, in which study becomes, v'shinantam l'fanecha, you shall teach your children, in which study becomes such an important component of it. The Yivo Institute in New York, subsequent to World War II, recovered many books, holy books, foreign, from Europe. And, and Abraham Joshua Heschel was once down there and came across one of them. It was a, a volume of the Mishnah, not in great shape, but it said on the front page of it, belongs to the daily, the daily Mishnah study group of the woodchoppers of Berdichev. That the woodchoppers of Berdichev used to get together every day between Mincha and Myra to study Mishnah ultimately explains why their great-grandsons and great-granddaughters in America pursue education with such avidity. There was a religious passion to education. If you look in the Orthodox world, if you look in the modern Orthodox world, so there's a passion both for religious and secular education. If you look in the Haredi Orthodox world, so the passion is generally extended just towards the Kodesh, holy study. If you look in the non-Orthodox world, we're the bearers of this tradition in which study became something very holy. Now, as a result, the Jews really did end up achieving much greater financial success and, and other things, and it did inspire, in fact, a certain degree of envy. But again, it's also rooted in Jewish law. As regards peoplehood, the paradox of Jewish peoplehood is distinguished Jews from the earliest of times. When Ruth converts to becomes a Jew, the first person that the Bible writes of at some length, assuming a Jewish character, she says four words in Hebrew that have ever since defined the essence of what it means to be a Jew. She says, Amecha mi Elohai Your people shall be my people, your God shall be my God. The two are inextricably uh, linked. And this is, I would argue, also has been the glory of Judaism. In the 1970s, I once had occasion to do an interview with William Buckley. And Buckley said, I only hope that if you Jews succeed in getting the Jews out of Russia, you'll leave at least a few Jews behind, so that at least the Jews in America will go on protesting the religious persecutions in the Soviet Union. Buckley said that because he was profoundly ashamed that Christians in America we're not leading a fight against religious oppression in the Soviet Union. We know that Jimmy Carter, when he was president, raised the issue of the mistreatment of Jews in Russia. There was an enormous political pressure to do so. I don't know. I don't know whether he raised the issue of the mistreatment of Baptists in Russia. Maybe he did. It hasn't yet come out. But there were hundreds of Baptists in Soviet prison camps for the crime of underground printings of the New Testament. But in the Jews, this linkage of religion and people had meant that we could never become such an abstract people that we weren't worrying about our people elsewhere. I remember that glorious day in 1984 when Israel in one day brought out 14,000 Jews from Ethiopia. And William Sapphire wrote a column. He said, I don't know if it's happened before in history that 14,000 black people were ever brought into a white nation to liberate them and not to bring them there to be servants. You know, there was always the discussion, were the Ethiopian Jews, were they not? Should they be accepted? Do they have to convert? I was in the camp of those who always believed they were Jewish, and I'll tell you why. When they came out, the Ethiopian Jews only knew two languages, Amharic and Gez. They had seven words in Hebrew that they had kept for thousands of years. One of those words was good. I was convinced that that, you know, that, that showed it. On the other hand, there was a flip side to the Jews being a religion and peoplehood, and the flip side was, could we be fully trusted to be loyal to the nations in which we live? 
By the way, that concern about the dual loyalty charge was so profound that it animated Reform Judaism to originally drop the notion of peoplehood. Most people, when they think of early Reform Judaism, much of which was quite radical in what it was dropping from Jewish life, tend to think of it primarily in terms of its religious reforms. But the truth is, very central to early Reform Judaism, and again, this is not true of Reform Judaism today, but very central to early Reform Judaism was dropping the notion of Jewish peoplehood, which they thought really would call into question Jewish loyalties. In any case, the phenomenon today of anti-Zionism is directed against Jewish peoplehood. There'd be no sort of anti-Zionists who would claim they don't care what religion the Jews practice, as long as they can, but, but they want to express their hatred to Israel. And that's where it really comes, you know, that's what it really comes down to. You look at the situation and the hatred of Israel, and I happen to be one who believes I wanted to be a, Pal a Palestinian state. One of the reasons I wanted to be a Palestinian state is because ultimately I think otherwise the percentage of people living under Israeli rule who will be non-Jews will come to equal or exceed eventually. I think Israel, I want Israel, I desperately want Israel to be both a Jewish state and a democracy, and that is why I want to see it be primarily, overwhelmingly a Jewish state. But the truth of the matter is, well, we shouldn't delude ourselves, obviously, though this group doesn't sound like a group that would delude itself about anti-Semite. We shouldn't, uh, you know, we shouldn't allow it. You know, in other words, Israel haters wanted Israel dead before it had the West Bank. And they wanted Israel dead because they want to get rid of this one Jewish outpost of democratic, humanistic, and fundamentally Jewish values in the middle in the middle of the uh, of the Arab world. So, what can Jews do about anti-Semitism? I want to just offer a few things, then I'd like to open it up uh, for for comments. The following strike me as possible solutions. One is, if you really want to rid yourself of anti-Semitism, is assimilate. And again, I don't think this group is convened to do that. Uh, but many Jews have tried to evade, evade the consequences of anti-Semitism through assimilation. It's like a joke they tell, uh, you know, from the 30s, a Jew wants to get into a country club and he can't get in because he's Jewish. So finally he converts and applies for membership. And they ask him, what's your name? And he gives one of those pompous names, like Hutchinson River Parkway III. <laughs> what, do you, what do you do for a living? I own a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. I have an estate where I raise horses. It looks like a shoe-in for membership. One last question, sir, what is your religion? My religion? Why, I am a goy. <laughs> because both Jews didn't convert in order to become Christians. Throughout history, they converted in order to become goyim, to become part of the majority. In 1818, a rule was passed in Prussia that Jews are no longer allowed to practice law. So a man named Heinrich Marx converts, and converts his six children, including his son Karl Marx, who grows up to be a vicious anti-Semite. Around the same time in England, uh, Isaac Disraeli converts his son Benjamin, and by that act of conversion, ultimately enables his son to one day become prime minister. You know, he doesn't try in any way to disguise his origins. Look at the last name that he kept. So in any way, assimilation has been a tool by which many Jews have been able to leave the Jewish community. And unless one believes we're in danger of uh, a Nazi type of anti-Semitism that's going to check back generations, and it was fairly distinctive to the Nazis to do that, assimilation is a way out. The problem is it's not a cure for anti-Semitism. A cure for a disease means that the patient can go on living. 
a cure for anti-Semitism means that Jews can go on affirming their Jewishness without suffering because of it. Another thing Jews can do is to try and increase their numbers, to seek converts. And I think there are reasons for Jews to be very open to doing that. You know, I recently completed, uh, as Richard mentioned, a book on the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And one issue which I saw the Rebbe did not really address very much was the issue of, of seeking converts. That he did. He didn't think Jews should do so. But I wanted to know if he addressed it in one specific context. And that is the children of Jewish fathers and non-Jewish mothers, which I think the Jewish community should go out of its way to find a way to seek these people, to embrace them, and bring them into the community. I kept asking this, by the way, with Chabad Shluchim, because I said, you know, it used to be that if somebody had a Jewish last name, we presumed that they were Jewish. Now, of course, a Jewish last name is no presumption of Jewishness, because there are so many Jews, Jewish men, who are married to non-Jewish women. And, uh, and I think it's imperative that we, don't, that we not lose them. We're a declining group. In 1938, just prior to the Holocaust, there were about 2 billion people in the world, and Jews were estimated to have a population of 18 million. Now, we've never recovered from the Holocaust. There are today estimated to be about 13 million Jews in the world, in a world of about 7 billion people. So whereas at one time we were about 3 quarters of 1% of the world's population, now we're about 1 fifth of 1% of the world's population. In other words, at one point we were about seven or eight out of every thousand people in the world. Now we're about two. Non-Jews have trouble believing that. You know, studies show that non-Jews have a tendency to think Jews are like 15% of the population of the United States. A friend of mine was once on an airplane with a non-Jewish woman, and he asked her to guess how many Jews there were in the United States. She seemed informed about Jews. And she said, well, I know America's Protestant Catholic Jewish, and the Jews are the smallest group. There must be 30 million Jews in the United States. He said, no. He said, there were about 5 million. He said, well, then they all live in my city. Because <laughs> we're, you know, we're overrepresented. But no matter what, even if we convert, and even if we convert the children who have Jewish fathers and others, we're never going to make the numbers of Jews so substantial that that will answer the problem of anti-Semitism. What about Zionism? Zionism actually was a movement established to end anti-Semitism. That was what motivated Herzl. He thought only if the Jews had their own land would they be able to get the respect of other people, would they be safe from persecutions. And along the way, Zionism has achieved many remarkable things. Number one, most obviously, it created a Jewish state. Two, another miracle, it revived Hebrew as a spoken language. I don't know if there are other instances of a language that had stopped being spoken that ever got revived again. And three, it has consistently served as a refuge for Jews fleeing persecution. The one thing Zionism did not achieve was the one thing it set out to achieve, which was to solve anti-Semitism. It used to be that when Jews would live in a city, anti-Semitism would focus on the ghetto where the Jews lived. Now it's like the world is one gigantic city and Israel's the ghetto, and that's where anti-Semitism is focused. The only answer, ultimately, obviously, is a form of tikkun olam, changing the values of the world. But since it's not so easy to do that, so we have criteria for assessing the current levels of anti-Semitism. If, if you apply my thesis as anti-Semitism as a response to three pillars of Judaism, you start to see what sort of societies Jews are safe in and what sort of societies they're not. The greater the disparity between the society's reaction to Judaism's three pillars, 
uh, the greater is going to be the amount of anti-Semitism in the society. Nazi Germany hated the notion of God because there was no authority higher than Hitler and the Nazi party. Law. There was no law to which to appeal because the law was whatever Hitler and the Nazi party said the law was. And as regards peoplehood, they believed in Aryan superiority and in Semitic and in Jewish inferiority. Take the Soviet Union. Same antagonism in all communist societies. Same antagonism to a belief in God. Similarly, there isn't a universal moral law to which you can appeal, whereas Judaism tried to establish that legal tradition. And of course, again, the peoplehood aspect. Look at the United States. It's a comfort with all three aspects of Judaism. America has always been God-oriented. All American presidents speak of God in their inaugural address. They don't speak of Jesus. So America has been God-oriented, but not denominationally oriented. Jews, therefore, have a vested interest in keeping that balance. Now, most Jews are conscious of that balance. They certainly don't want to have an evangelical week. Christian presidents speaking about evangelical beliefs. They're balanced in that regard. Many Jews are attracted to very sacred, secular ideologies and not realizing that it actually is within the Jewish interest to live in a society that sees the major contribution the Jews brought to the world as having some value, which is the notion of monotheism. So America has been very moderate in that regard on religion. For all that we think of America as a religious Christian society, America is significant as Christianity is, is a law-based society. It's not surprising that Jews have done very well, given that Judaism as a religious system is also very much a law-based system. And finally, also, in terms of peoplehood, America has been a nation of immigrants. People who did not like that aspect of America usually don't end up liking Jew Jews. What was the name of Charles Lindbergh's anti-Semitic movement in the 1930s? It was called America First. I mean, technically, it was not an anti-Semitic movement. Technically, it was committed to keeping America out of World War II. But once Lindbergh delivered his famous speech that it's the Jews who are trying to drag America into World War II, the movement became identified with it. Does anybody know 20 years ago who, who tried to revive a political party in the United States and call it America First? Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan. I remember at that time, you know, there are very few new jokes I hear because I always... I, I've studied Jewish humor a long time. One of the few new ones I ever heard was Buchanan, uh, Buchanan, Farrakhan, and a rabbi get marooned on an island. And Farrakhan prays to God and says, God, please just get me off this island and take me and all the, Afri all the black Americans back to Africa. The rabbi says, God, please get me off this island and take me and all the Jews back to Israel. Buchanan says, God, in that case, all I want is a diet coke. <laughs> and uh, so Buchanan, uh, you know, tried at that time to do it. And of course, Jews tend to see America First people as being hostile to Jewish interests. How can Jews tell when they're in danger in a society? And the danger is a very easy test to tell. When someone is exposed as an anti-Semite, is it detrimental to the person or is it positive? Obviously, exposing somebody as an anti-Semite in Iran makes the person far more popular. What happens when somebody takes anti-Semitic positions in the United States? Well, you remember in the 80s, Jesse Jackson did so, and he felt compelled to apologize. Do I think in his heart Jackson has an, an animosities towards Jews? Yes. But the fact that he felt compelled to apologize, that's a good sign. At the same time, when Pat Buchanan was exposed as an anti-Semite, he refused to back down. And what happened? 
He was marginalized right outside of the right out of the Republican Party. That's why he had to establish an American, an American Independent Party. But it, it, he then wrote a book called America First. So that's really the criteria that we know. When somebody would be exposed as an anti-Semite and would feel no reason to apologize, and in fact would gain in popularity as a result, that's how we would know that we Jews were in danger. So I think that trying to understand anti-Semitism through the focus of its response to Jewish values and to Judaism gives us really another mechanism by which we can understand the phenomenon and another mechanism by how we can judge the phenomenon and see whether Jews are in a peaceful situation. Just having said that, it can't be the whole focus of Jewish life. Ultimately, the focus of Jewish life is not to frustrate anti-Semites, but it's really to try and affirm all those values that I spoke about of God, law, and peoplehood and expand them. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It uh, was a brilliant presentation. So I have a question that I'd like you to try to answer from a, from a Jewish world perspective. Um, so the three pillars of Judaism that you spoke of, and in Judaism we believe that God is responsible for everything, he created everything. So from a Jewish perspective, why is there anti-Semitism? That in the sense that in Tehillim it says that God examines the righteous, and chastises us for our sins. So some will argue, and some in some of the in some communities, the, the Jewish community, the communities, some will blame ourselves for bring that our failures is creating anti-Semitism by not keeping Shabbat, by not living up to all sorts of things, that our sins is is the is the reason why anti-Semitism exists. So from a Jewish perspective, not from a sociological perspective or uh, Western social science. So why does anti-Semitism exist? If God exists and He gave us the three pillars, why have we suffered so historically? Okay, so number one, obviously, I don't accept the belief that because of Jewish ritual sins, God imposes the Holocaust. There actually was a Jewish thinker of some distinction in Israel named Rabbi Lazar Shach, who did hold that position needless to say, was accepted by many people in the Haredi world, rejected by many there, and caused an enormous amount of antagonism. He said, God counts up our sins, and when they reach six million, that's when he imposed the Holocaust. Interestingly, in my book on the Rebbe, I have the Rebbe's response to that, in which he said it's forbidden to say that, that God is there like a cool uh, person counting up sins. Now, it's interesting, though, that people would focus it on ritual sins and God inflicting punishment. One could argue something else, which is interesting, that if Jews don't try and influence the world with its notions of ethical monotheism, Jews will suffer in a world that doesn't accept those notions. In other words, Jews didn't suffer from the Nazis because the Nazis were punishing Jews at God's behest, but they suffered in the fact that they were living in a society that accepted very alien values, that accepted values that were very hateful of God. So we have a personal self-interest not in converting people to Judaism, but in influencing people to believe that there's one God whose primary demands of human beings are moral. The attempt to use God to account for anti-Semitism, it's, it's actually, it's fool I would actually argue it's foolish, and I'll tell you why. It's been used by every side of the group. Zionists used it. You know, the Zionist case was actually a logical case. 
The Jews who stayed in Europe were killed in the Holocaust. The Jews who were Zionists and who left weren't. It's disgusting. If anybody tried to use that to explain anything, I'd be furious at them. But I'm just simply showing, you know, on its face, you can't say that. Jews become irreligious and they suffer. There's, there's no correlation. Among the Jews who suffered, certainly in Poland, the percentage who were religiously observant was much higher than Jews in the United States who, who, who didn't suffer in that way. But you could argue it, instead of always defining Judaism as primarily through its ritual component, that Jews have a vested interest in making known and influencing people, uh, influencing people of that world. Let me give you an example in the United States. America, as far as I know, is the only society in history that has a self-definition commonly used of Judeo-Christian ethic. Now, there are no shortage of Jews who say, well, you can't really say it's the same thing, Judaism and Christianity. I wouldn't advise most Jews as a political point to go around trying to prove to Christians that you're not a Judeo-Christian. No, but it's in itself, it's a very, it's a fascinating thing. Uh, I remember when I lived in Israel in the 80s, Israelis would sometimes say to me, you American Jews are naive, you think you're the first Jews who ever had equal rights, and look what happened in France, look what happened in Germany. And one day the answer occurred to me, the United States is not the first society in which Jews have been emancipated. It is, however, the first society in which Judaism has been emancipated. When Jews were emancipated in Europe, Judaism still had no status. There was an expression among European Jews, be a Jew, be a Jew at home and a human being in the streets, a mensch in the streets, which is a pathetic statement. You know, they couldn't do it. France, you have the phenomenon of Jewish men who would wear wigs to make them look like yarmulkes because they didn't want to be perceived as wearing a kippah. You know, they were uncomfortable doing so. What do I mean when I say Judaism has status in the United States in a way it did in Europe? How many people in this room, by a show of hands, know two or more non-Jews have converted to Judaism? Everybody. How many of you know two or more Jews have become Christians? Okay, two people out of this group. Had we been meeting a hundred years ago in France or in Germany, it would have been the exact opposite. If I would have said to you at that time when Jews were emancipated, how many of you know two or more non-Jews who converted to Judaism, you would have looked at me as if I was Meshuggah. Nobody was converted to Judaism. How many of you know two or more Jews who have become Christians? Everybody knew many Jews who had become. It had become, you know, it had become a common phenomenon of Jews leaving. So Jews have status in a way they didn't have in Europe. I mean, ironically, uh, Joe Lieberman was nominated as the vice presidential candidate, one of the reasons being the fact that he was a religious Jew was conceived as being a positive thing. What happened was, if you remember, Gore was running. There had recently been this very unfortunate uh, scandal with, uh, with President Clinton. And basically, it seemed like the Christian right had gotten the Republican Party. So, <coughs> so Lieberman's religiosity was considered a, a status. Who would have ever thought such a thing? You know, I remember in 1964, I was in high school when Barry Goldwater was nominated to be the Republican candidate for president. Meeting Harry Golden to make the famous observation, I always knew that the first Jew nominated for president would be an Episcopalian. But they, uh, had somebody told us in 64 that in 2000 there would be a Jewish candidate on the national ticket, we would have assumed it's what we used to call a two or three day a year Jew. Somebody who might go to synagogue on Rosh Hashanah, on Yom Kippur, and go to a Passover Seder. 
Had somebody said, no, he's going to be a religious guy, he's not going to campaign on Saturday, it would have seemed ridiculous. In the 1930s, the New York Times, the Jewish on New York Times, was still publishing classified ads. Hebrews, no matter how qualified, need not apply. When Jews got so angry at Salzburger for publishing those ads, he said, I'm only doing it to spare Jews embarrassment. He said, I don't want Jews showing up in offices and then thinking they had a shot at a job and that they had no shot at it. So there's been, you know, so there, this has been the case, this has been the status. And just to briefly go back to your thing, obviously people who feel that, that God's going to punish the Jews because of Sabbath violations by, by sending the Nazis as his messengers, uh, the fear I have is, are any of you familiar with the writings of C.S. Lewis? Yeah. Lewis wrote a book, A Brief Observed. Lewis, late in his life, had been a lifelong bachelor. He fell in love with a woman. There's a beautiful movie about it called Shadowlands with, uh, with Anthony Hopkins and Deborah Winger. Yeah, I mean, the only thing about the movie that's a little sad to me is, is the woman he falls in love with, who becomes an incredibly devout and devoted Christian, is really was a, an alienated Jewish woman from a left-wing background. So I mean, that's, that's sad to me because we've lost, we've lost some very good people. Uh, but anyway, she then dies. And, and he struggles with that belief. There's everything that happened in this world, God's will and things like that. And he then ultimately rejects it because he says, but that turns God into a monster. I would hate to, I, you know, I would hate such a God. And it's hard to raise your children to feel, we all want our children to love God. We want them to fear God. We want them to have fear of the consequences of doing evil. But we certainly don't want them to fear that if they become non-observant, and in many Jews become non-observant, God's going to unleash a Hitler against it. And so that's why ultimately, when Shach did that, the Rebbe responded to him, and actually without naming him, because it was characteristic of the Rebbe, he would not name people he opposed. He would never mention their names in speeches. Uh, I was speaking to Michal Seligson, who spent 20 years compiling a 1,600-page index of the Rebbe's speeches, and he said he could not remember instances in which the Rebbe criticized someone by name. I found out that it's not entirely true. He, he had some, but, but he didn't mention Shach by name, but he actually said it's a chilul Hashem. It's a, it desecrates God's name to associate him with having, you know, with having permitted uh, or, or encouraged such a thing and, and wanting it. So, uh, so anyway, we don't want to do the work of anti-Semites. Anti-Semites already say that everything we do to the Jews, they deserve. So if Jews then say, yeah, and God thinks so too, look what we're going to end up doing. So it's down to free will? Just so. I would say that, yeah, I would say <laughs> the glory of human beings is that they have free will and that they can use that free will to do evil. Do I still pray when people are sick? I am praying desperately. I am learning I went back, which I hadn't done for years, to a steady study now of Talmud, and what motivated me to do it is because it's a very, very dear friend of mine is very, very, very sick. No, so yes, I, do I believe we can influence God by our behavior? Yes, I do. But the moment people start being certain that they can that they can determine what God's going to do, they they tend to become very dangerous. You know, when people do what they think God would do in the circumstances. I don't know if God wants them to be their uh, their representative. Their yeah, they hear voices. Yeah, yes. Thank you for the wonderful thesis. I'm wondering. Um, it seems to me that 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 the three pillars actually is very interdependent. So, for example, you couldn't actually have law or have this faith without having some people, but you can't do those things alone. 
Right. So you actually have to have people. And yet what we've come in for, and I know it's been extremely hypocritical because it's, it's been done in the name of other nationalism, but, but the contemporary anti-Semites, um, those who are anti-Israel, very much accuse us of being nationalists, right, and nationalistically exclusive. I mean, that's one of the major left-wing um, anti-Zionist tropes. And I'm wondering how it goes. In the sense of Israel being a Jewish state? In the sense of Israel being a Jewish state, in the sense of, I think, you know, it goes back to older anti-Semitic tropes about, you know, Jews being exclusionary and being, you know, um, an elitist clique of their own. So I'm wondering okay, how, but what do you, how do you handle an evangelical Christianity's assertion that if you don't believe in Jesus, you go to hell? I mean, that's a, a form of chosenness, that no matter how good a person you are, you will go to hell. Now, again, I say this, and I think evangelical Christianity has reached out to Jews in a remarkable way, but I'm simply saying, I think the word for China in Chinese means center of the earth, uh, of the world. I, it's only Jews that somehow get blamed, uh, that get blamed with it. I'm not exactly clear why. I think it has right. some value <laughs> into the notion of chosenness. But I think the problem is other people try to appropriate the chosenness for themselves. Christianity spoke of the new Israel. Uh, Islam felt that it had come to supplant Judaism, and yet the Jews continue. So I think it bothers people. Uh, some non-Jews are impressed by it. William Buckley was an example of it. When he made that comment to me, he said, I only hope a few Jews, if the new Jews do get the Jews out of Russia, you go on protesting, so at least you'll protest because he was struck by the affinities that Jews had. I think Jews are, were often shocked. The Maronites, Christians in Lebanon, treated terribly. And the Christian world, by and large, doesn't seem consumed in a way, consumed, it doesn't seem concerned in a way that we would imagine when we hear bad things are happening to Jews in other countries. That's why I said it's sort of the glory of Judaism. And yet, I think, I think for many leftists, many of whom, needless to say, are Jews, or of Jewish extraction, I think they use a certain strategy, which I find very cynical. They're like Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. But the whole reason the story of Abraham and Isaac moves us is, is because we know Abraham loved God, and we know that Abraham also loved Isaac. And ultimately, the punchline to the story is God doesn't want human sacrifice. I think many of these leftists are willing to sell Israel down the river you know, and say, oh, well, you know, acting like they care. But the truth is they don't. They're self-hating Jews. Chomsky, <laughs> I don't think, cares. Uh, cares very much. So uh, so what leftists say, you know, because they're so selective in who they choose, <laughs> the left, uh, they don't criticize hypocrisies on the left, and they pick, you know, they pick on the Jews. So I sort of made a decision early in life that there are two groups no matter how broad an appeal I try and make on behalf of Judaism, I'm never going to reach, which is Jews on the far left and Jews on the far, far right. You know, and I mean religiously in those circles. You know, who are, who are, but there's a very large center of people. So those Jews, those sorts of people on the left who take the positions you're talking about, there is no argument that will change their mind. And, and, and therefore, and it's important to know that. Because once you realize that there's no argument that's going to change another person's mind, you'll stop devoting time or energy to doing it, you'll just recognize that the person is an enemy, and however you can defeat them, it's important to defeat them. Yes? I believe you said uh, reformed Jews uh, dropped the notion of a Jewish 
peoplehood to a In the 19th century. Yes. In the 19th century. For me, that's a very significant and important statement because, well, well how is that, how do you see that reflected uh, in what Reformed Jews say and do and the Reformed, the institution, the Reformed institution, like the head of the, the Reformed rabbi, the head of the Reformed rabbi, the rabbinical No, no, I, no wait, 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 I want to be very careful what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. 19th century Reformed Judaism felt that for Jews to be fully emancipated, they had to be able to stay. And they believed that they had to be able to stay. We Jews are only a religion, we're not a people. In 1840, I'll take it in a minute, in 1840 a very shocking event happens. The blood libel is introduced into Damascus, into the Arab world. And it becomes the first time that Jews throughout the world try and stop an anti-Semitic uh, act like that. So you had Adolf Primo in France, and French was supporting it. You had Montefiore in England. Jews go to Martin Van Buren. The only thing I know about Martin Van Buren and the Jews is that he opened up his desk and showed that he had already written a letter uh, criticizing it. They go to Abraham Geiger in Germany, the head of the reform community in Germany. He said, don't try and turn this into a Jewish issue. He said, I feel personally sympathetic to these people, but I'm more concerned with my fellow Ger Jews here in Germany that they can get it. So that was characteristic. Now what happened was, and it changed. It's thought, you know, there are historical events that indicated the change. In 1937, in Columbia, uh, uh, in, 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 at the Columbia Convention of the Reform uh, Rabbinate, they, they changed to an affirmative position on Zionism. So it changed. I mean, you're probably aware that in the history of reform, even in the United States, there was an organization called the American Council for Judaism, which vigorously, vigorously opposed Zionism. And, but it really, but it did change. So I, I would not, it's not a fair claim to make, but it sounded like you thought it was still true? I believe it's absolutely true, and everything I see in coming from the rabbi, who, the head rabbi of uh, Reform Judaism. Jacobs. You look at Jacobs. the previous one. I see it reflected everywhere in Reform Judaism. The, the state of Israel, there is a strong leftist critique of Israel coming from right. both both the left the left wing of the conservative yeah. movement, like BJ here right. on the West Side. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Does everybody want to comment on this? Richard? Well, uh, yeah, I, this is an, I think there's a theme running through the questions and through your statement that I want to pinpoint. And that is that as some kind of collective Jewish response to anti-Semitism, uh, be it aggressive, threatening anti-Semitism, or si simply a form of anti-Semitism that creates a ceiling, a social ceiling, or an, a financial ceiling, an exclusivity of some kind, there's a, throughout uh, modern times and maybe before, a kind of delusion on the part of Jews that they influence anti-Semitism by acting less like an Am, less like a people, by acting less Jewish. Uh, I remember my father <coughs> asking me when I went to Harvard in 1960, how did my Christian roommates, aristocratic Christian roommates, react to my putting on filling it. I remember saying to him, Pa, you don't understand. They either like Jews or they don't like Jews. Mostly they do. 
it's not going to be influenced by whether only Jews care and judge me by whether I put on film, and only Jews might find it unattractive. And I think that that theme was behind the reform, the reform movement in growing out of an assimilating move in Western Europe was to some extent a movement not to look too Jewish, not to be allied with Eastern European Jews. The split that you talk about between German and Eastern European Jews, which dominated the atmosphere I grew up in, was, was the delusion that, that non-Jews based their opinion of you on whether you looked a certain Jewish way or another Jewish way. It's, a, it's an illusion. Yeah, ask you. Yeah, Okay, that's excellent. Oh, you know, that's, that's a very important point, and, and you're right. I remember that was part of the, well, it ties in, though, again, I don't want to be unfair to the reform movement, but, but it ties in, there was an exchange of letters between the Rebbe, when Chabad started the campaign of having public Hanukkah lightings of candles, how many of you remember, were, were any of you here uncomfortable with that when they started doing it on like government property and other things? Okay, so some are, okay. So Joe Blazer, who was the head of the Reform Rabbinical Organization, wrote a series of letters to the Rebbe. One of the points the Rebbe made, to Glazer and to others as well, he said, I still can't believe that in the aftermath of, the, of what happened to the Jews starting in Germany, there are still Jews who think, along to the point Richard was making, there are still Jews who think that if we're going to act less publicly Jewish, we'll be more accepted. You know, it, it, you have to, if you want to oppose it, oppose it on different grounds, but, but, that's, but that's not the grounds. And there was the one, in all of Philip Roth's writings, probably the most sympathetic story he ever wrote about the Jews was a story called Eli the Fanatic, where this young Jew in a town, uh, it was a town in Westchester, you know, starts becoming uh, religiously observant. And the Jews are very upset because the yeshiva has moved into the town. And the head of the yeshiva says to them at one point, you think we're going to cause the anti-Semitism? You're the ones who cause it. You're the ones they don't want to have co coming into their country clubs. They don't care about us. You know, we're, and so it's, you know, it's an, interesting, uh, an interesting misapprehension. Okay, let me just take all the people who still had their hands up. Okay, wow, okay, yes. I will try and be briefer. Okay. Just a quick note on Reform Judaism and Zionism today. Historically, it was we want to be uh, citizens of the Hebrew religion of the uh, CCAR conference in the 19th century. And it came to the point where by uh, the 60s, 70s, the, the rabbinical school was required in the year in Israel. We established a rabbinical school in Israel to this right. day that requires at least one year study in Israel. Uh, they've done many things that were pro-Israel to the point where now uh, there is a head of the uh, Union of American Hebrew Congregations who is on the J Street board. And it's not just Reform Judaism, but even in the conservative JT uh, Jewish Theological Seminary just up the blocks here, uh, you have rabbis who are concerned with how um, corrupt in Israel is by occupation, having accepted the narrative of the Nakba. Uh, I, I wanted to address Jewish identification. And uh, uh, there are people like Avram Infeld, 
who speak about a number of characteristics that make a person a Jew. And religion is just one of them. And if you look at the world and look at the Jewish population, you can see that many Jews are totally non-religious but Jewishly identified and part of the Jewish people. And he suggests that religion is one but not the most important or even the most necessary and can be entirely gone. By the way, I don't know if that's distinctive to Avraham. It strikes me that was at the heart of Mordechai Kaplan's well, defining I, Judaism. I, I, I only heard his famous it. book was Judaism as a Civilization. Okay. Okay. And by the way, you know, Infeld, who I know well, who is himself actually quite a religious Jew. Yes. Uh, listen, obviously I believe in religion on its own. I don't believe in religion as just having utilitarian value. Uh, it, it's justified because I think of its truth, but nonetheless, it's not. Who are we fooling? It's not, we're not going to go on as a culture indefinitely. We we won't, except for those people who really believe at the heart of Judaism that there is a truth in doing these things. It's 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 going to come to an end. What is the The Jewish people. If we had, a, if no Jews, if Jews all collectively stop believing in God and certainly stop believing, therefore, in the binding nature of Jewish law, it's hard to maintain a culture forever that the culture largely emanated out of the belief in those very things. You know, it's nice to go to, it's nice to, go to Fiddler on the Roof, but remember, ultimately, Tevya was a religious character. You know, and, and, and the whole power of his story was because of his struggles with God, what he feels, you know, his issues with God, but there's still a God that he that he's struggling with. And if that all becomes eliminated, you know, what's the case to be made for the perpetuation of Judaism any more than any other, you know, cultural thing? Yes, it's nice that you go to Ireland and they have a tavern where they sing Irish ballads, but it's it has to be a little more serious than that. Unless they live in Israel. Unless okay, unless they live in Israel. What you're is right. That? You're right. But even in Israel it ultimately needs something more significant than that. You know, remember in Israel they had at one time a movement of Israeli Hebrew poets called Canaanites because they didn't want to feel any attachment to the diaspora. Yes? Um, I had a little bit more of a politically uh, focused question uh, just coming from my own personal experience. Um, I'm curious, why are so many Jewish students at universities and Jewish professors like Judith Butler say so vehemently anti-Zionist, and is this a new thing? Unfortunately, it's not a new thing. It's the legacy of the odd feature of the attraction. It's a new variation, I think, in a sense, of the attraction historically of Jews to leftist and to communist ideologies. I'm not. A, it's, it's a hard thing to explain. I think it's one of the ways in which the left showed its loyalty, so to speak, to a higher value. The subject of Jews and communism is a sensitive subject for Jews, because now that the world recognizes what a horror communism contributed to the world, you know, recognizes Stalin was up there with Hitler in terms of evil, and yet we encounter the peculiar phenomenon that whereas we expect everybody in the world to hate Hitler, there were no shortage of Jews in the 1930s and 40s who admired Stalin. Uh, I know that from my parents, because they knew the circles in which they turned. My father had gotten out of Russia when he was 16 and went to City College in the 1930s. He knew what it was like because my father had lived until the age of 16 under communist rule and he couldn't believe people who romanticized and glorified communism 
and by and large who were very contemptuous of Judaism. Remember, one of the aspects of communism was, was atheism. So again, my criteria of the three things is this. A Jew who does not subscribe to any of the three pillars of Judaism is, in my view, what could be called a non-Jewish Jew. And Jews suffer from non-Jewish Jews because the world sees them as Jews and sees their actions as despicable and hates them and blames it on the Jews. And we suffer as Jews because they are hateful to the Jews. And the classic example I'm speaking of is Karl Marx. Karl Marx is thought of by many anti-communists as having been a Jew. Karl Marx was so hateful of Judaism that Hitler actually acknowledged that one of Marx's ideas had influenced him. And he writes, he says, I, I, I'm unhappy to admit that it comes from none other than, than, than one of them. You know, uh, Marx's claim that Jews, the only thing Jews really worshipped was money, was not God. So here, you know, we, we suffer from it. It's a double-edged sword, which is what happens with Jews on the left, who I think it's their way of proving, among other things, uh, that they do it. When I get to Jews who are not quite as extreme, I'll just tell you a funny observation I once heard from Uri Simon. Uri Simon is a dove in, in Israel, by Israeli political standards, and he's a religious Jew. His father, Ernst Simon, was a, a friend of Martin Buber's, who became an observant Jew, and Ernst Simon became famous for a statement he once made, my problem in life is that the people I can talk to, I can't pray with, and the people I can pray with, I can't talk to. Statement that David Weiss Halivni later on used to quote. But Uri once said something very interesting to me. He said, The irony I find in Israel is the following. And remember, it's a double, it's a double statement. So one half is bound to annoy some of you in this room, and the other half you'll find funny. Uh, but you, it depends on your political orientation as to which half it is. He said, The irony in life in Israel is this it's the people in Israel who most believe that we're the chosen people who are most apt to justify any stance Israel takes on any issue on the grounds that we have the right to be like any other nation. And it's the people in Israel who least believe that we're the chosen people who are most apt to hold Israel to a standard they won't hold any other nation. And it, it defines, I think, you know, an interesting paradox about it. But the self-hating Jews, that's really what they are. They're non Isaac Deutscher, who is himself such a person, defined what he called a non-Jewish Jew. It wasn't only Marx. Trotsky was the same. Trotsky's born name was Lev Bronstein. He was the head of the Red Army. When the Jews came and pleaded with him to help stop, to use the Red Army to stop the pogroms, which were being led by people blaming, the communi blaming communism on the Jews, he said, why do you come to me? I'm a, he said, why do you come to me? I'm a socialist. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a Jew. Now, Rabbi Meza, who was the rabbi in Moscow who met with Trotsky, claims that he said, or they said that he then said to Trotsky, but I'm sure he didn't. He didn't want to get killed. But he later on said of that encounter, he said, that's the tragedy in life. He says, it's the uh, Trotskys who lead the revolutions, and it's the Bronsteins who pay the price. You know, and that's, in a sense, that's what he meant by that phenomenon that was going on. Yes? And you're a scholar, if you're a scholar from the Jew Really like the years. Right. Are you going to come to Isaiah and use the anti Semitism that was invented by a 19th century anti Semite? And Wilhelm Marr. Yes, I am uncomfortable. I like that okay, I am uncomfortable, and as a result, what I do is the following. When Marr created the term anti Semitism, he created it because he thought Ludenhaus, Jew, Jew hater, sounded too, uh, too vulgar. So he wanted to make it sound scientific. 
So in all of my books, in every book I've written, I've always had a problem with the editors, and then they agree to it, is I never write anti-Semite the way it's conventionally written. I write it as A-N-T-I-S-E-M-I-T-E, -E, not anti-capital S. Because there was only the, the code word for Jews, and it gave open, you know, Arab anti-Semites have to say that, we're Semites. So that's why, because it's become the accepted word, you know, that's why I'm willing to use it, but that's why Emil Fackenheim is the one who influenced me to make that change, and I think he was right. And the last question, I think. Okay, next question. Yes. Yes, yeah, so I wanted to, to, to react to your statement that the, 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 the drive to abandon nationhood is one of the three pillars of the, of the, of the Jewish entity. Not the drive to abandon, oh, it's one of the pillars of of the Jewish entity, of the Jewish, of the, uh, Jewish identification. And, and you said that it was very predominant in the 19th century and was what really what drove the, the early reform movement. Right. I'm afraid that this is what's happening nowadays in, 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 in maybe in larger numbers. Uh, if you look at the phenomenon of American Jewry, um, it's not just lack of identification, but, but, but abandonment of identification with what is the epicenter of, of Jewish life, which, which is Israel, I believe. Is, 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 is just as much of a, a demonstration, manifestation of the same phenomenon, is it not? Um, yes. We have, no. we, have, we have so many. You have so many students. You have so many. It's been in every corner of the world, but they will never go to Israel. Um, they will. They, they feel ashamed to be associated with an organization that has not in religious terms, an organization that forget about religion. That that uh, is. is 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 describing um, itself as promoting Jews, Ju Judaism, and the nationhood, as or, or the interest of, its, of the nation, the interest of its state. Okay. It, and, and I think the phenomenon is much more predominant now than it, than it was in the 19th century. Really? Or at least now. Well, listen. I suppose you know Dickens' line: "It's the best of times and the worst of times." Always applies. I mean, there are certainly. The manifestations of Jewish life on campuses today are much stronger than they've ever been in the past. So I'm loath to say that you know that that it's that much uh, that you know that that things have deteriorated so much. I don't know. I mean, I want to take into account what you're saying. It's a frightening thing that you're saying that it's the people that aspect because that's the one thing we always took for granted that even if a Jew became non-observant, he still cared. He still cared about other Jews. If uh, the legacy of generations of Jews being alienated from Judaism becomes being alienated from a sense of Jewish people, uh, then you're right. The danger is very. Uh, the answer lies in the fact that while while you described this so so beautifully, at three different pillars mm -hmm. for the Jewish identity, that none of the pillars can stand on its own. That no, that is definitely correct. But and what was always no distinctive to Jews, I'll tell you why. I have this insight. Many years ago, Dennis and I, when we were in L.A., maybe I'll come to the question. Okay, then I'll do that. Okay. Dennis and I, when we were in L.A., used to do uh, interviews with people, you know, different backgrounds, a, a form of contemporary values. And I, we were once struck by something. We had done an interview with uh, a man named Jorge Mejia, who subsequently became a bishop. At the time, uh, Jorge was uh, Pope John Paul II's liaison between the Catholic Church and the Jewish community. And at a certain point in the interview, we asked him about issues of faith. Does he have doubts about God, about Jesus? 
And he said, my entire life, I have never once doubted God's existence or that Jesus is God. A year later, we did an interview like that with Jerry Falwell. And, by the way, I came out of that interview, I just want to say in one sentence, because Falwell is so well known, I came out of that interview with two thoughts. I never want Falwell to get any political power in, in America, and the man is not an anti-Semite. Because when Jews don't like somebody politically, they have an ugly tendency to claim the person was an anti-Semite. And it, it, I don't think he, I, 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 he wasn't. But anyway, we asked Falwell that same question. It turned out Falwell, as a young man, had grown up in a non-religious household, and then he told us, but once I had, he had a conversionary experience in 1950 with some radio evangelist. He said, since then I've never had one moment of doubt. And I remember Dennis and I driving home, we're talking about the fact we both come out of Orthodox families, and I've never met anybody who said they never had any doubt. And it occurred to me that there was a brilliance in the three pillars of Judaism. Even if you're temporarily feeling alienated from one of them, you can still fully connect as a Jew. A profound Orthodox rabbi that I know, who's a great legal scholar as well, once told me, and I'm obviously not mentioning his name, because it's nothing you talk about, he said he went through periods of doubt about God, but he always stayed very observant, and you know, it came, and it came through with him. For Christians, you don't have exactly that pillar. And if you're really having doubts about Christianity, about Christ, it's hard to think of yourself as a Christian. Much as if the name of Judaism religion, let's say it was called God. So if you're having doubts about God, it's hard to be in that religion if you really don't think Christ is the God. So I, I thought the brilliance of the, uh, of the three is you could have one. Now obviously, ideally, you want to be active in all three, you want Jews to be active in all three components. But you can also recognize that if somebody is very passionately committed to one, you know, it doesn't matter. You, you, you see it. Martin Gilbert, the uh, British Jewish historian, I happen to have been friendly with, you know, not a religious Jew in any conventional sense of the word, but, you know, obviously passionately committed to Jewish people, like David Ben-Gurion, you know, or others, but you're right. So we need all three there, but we can also countenance some people being more involved in one than in the other, but, if, but once somebody becomes alienated from all three, which is how I would define a Noam Chomsky, then I think you're outside the parameters. Okay, this is the last because I know we're yes. Uh, I went to the Jerusalem Iran with that and the Shah, and it strikes me that in Islam or Shia Islam, if you're uh, a people of the book, you're dimming, you're persecuted, and inferior minorities are protected in your own way. Right. So perhaps part of what we'll see in the anti-Zionism now is Jews as a sovereign nation, Jews as a majority ruling over. Muslims disturbs the order of things, and that even historically, perhaps the Jews who are persecuted minority in the ghetto, that's one thing. But if they think they're superior, because they're educated, or they're, they have more money, or they you know, have power, that disturbs the notion that they should be inferior or persecuted or minority. Yeah, so no, I think there's a great deal to what you're saying, and I think the proof of what the support for what you're saying was that the other society that inspired such an antagonistic feeling on the part of Islam was Lebanon where Christians for a long point, you know, had, had, had some power there. And basically the effort is to dislodge them. So I think you're right. I think that that's, a, so that's what Islam has to do with. On this happy note. Thank you. So, so thank, thank, you. You. So thank you very much on behalf of ISCAP. And thank you, Professor Stone.